The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines this morning. The 10-year JGB breaks through the Bank of Japan's ceiling for a second day, while the yen surges, putting the central bank under fresh pressure to move away from its ultra-loose stance as policymakers prepare to meet. The IMF warns severe economic fragmentation could cost the world up to 7% of GDP. This as top global leaders descend on Davos for the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. We'll bring you full coverage all week. U.S. banks rally off session lows despite a mixed set of results with a sharp increase in provisioning and warnings of a downturn ahead. Our core prediction at Bank of America is for a mild recession in early 23 to mid 23. And our Candace Browning Platt and the research team, which you have lots of our colleagues on in a given year, have been there pretty consistently. And Credit Suisse reportedly prepares to cut more than 10% of its European investment bankers this year as the troubled Swiss lender works on the next wave of its restructuring. Happy Monday, everybody, and a warm welcome to Squawk Box. This morning, focus on Japan. The country's 10-year bond yield broke through the central bank ceiling of 0.5% for a second day, having risen as high as 0.545 on Friday, with investors eyeing a hawkish move from the central bank as soon as this week. The Bank of Japan said last week that it would buy more government bonds today as yields rose. Now, policymakers meet tomorrow, having doubled the cap on the 10-year yield last month, with speculation they will lift it again or may even abandon the yield curve control policy entirely. The Bank of Japan is also under pressure to change its policy on interest rates, having stuck stubbornly to its decades-long attempt to stoke prices rises, even as inflation comes in hot, with December core CPI expected to hit 4% on Friday, double the bank's target. You can see there the Nikkei 225 down about 1.1% this morning. The dollar right now trading on the back foot versus the yen. We're down about two-tenths of a percent, 127.60. And the yen has certainly been a big focal point for investors and many would say a consensual long into 2023. Now, data-wise, Japanese wholesale prices jumped more than expected last month, putting more pressure on the BOJ's ultra-easy policy stance. The corporate goods price index jumped 10.2% in the year, sharply higher than the previous month. For the full year, wholesale prices jumped 9.7%, the highest on record. My colleague J.P. Ong joins us now with more on the BOJ's potential uh, major policy meeting this week. J.P., run through for us what the scenarios are that we could see from the Bank of Japan tomorrow. Well, that's the big question, right? Exactly what is going to happen with regards to the yield curve control and whether we're going to see another widening of the band around that yield curve control. But so far, markets, as we mentioned a while ago, are pricing in a potential move to once again relax things and could lead to an appreciation or a rise in a, a, a loosening, at least, of the straps, if for, for lack of a better term, which could lead to a stronger yen and also um, more movement, at least, uh, towards a what, what some would say may be a bit more normalization around, that, uh, around the yield curve out in Japan. You can see it playing out 
actually here in equities in in uh, in in the Asia Pacific region. For the most part, it's been very positive actually. Depending, uh, no matter where you look, actually in 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 regional stocks here, uh, markets like the Shanghai and the Shenzhen Composite, mainly China, doing quite well despite that spike in COVID nineteen deaths that they revealed. It is the reopening play still very much in play in China. The Hang Seng is down, but again, but not by much. They've just down by about zero point three percent, and everyone else pretty much looking a bit more optimistic. But then when you look at the Nikkei two two five, well, frankly, they're st- sticking out like a bit of a sore thumb. They're down by about 1.1% in today's session. And that's also on the back of that stronger Japanese yen that's also benefited from these bets that we might see the Bank of Japan actually widen the band, at least, around their yield curve control. Take a look at where the yen is at the moment. It's already at some of the strongest levels in months. Mind you, just about uh, three months ago, it was already testing at least 140, 150. Now at about 127.5 against the U.S. dollar, it's looking quite strong and also benefiting from that strength. Now, the thing is, though, as we know, that that, that well-known relationship, at least, between the, the yen and the Nikkei 225 is playing out. A number of exporters actually comprise or uh, make up the Nikkei 225. And when you see the yen start to strengthen, it does also weigh on expected earnings, at least, or for these exporters that benefit from a weaker yen. And thus, you're seeing it play out for a number of exporters out in Japan. Take a look at some stocks that we've actually picked out. You've got Toyota riding the flat line today, but Honda, despite news that they have a JV, uh, formed the JV with LG Energy Solution to build out electric vehicle batteries, well, they're actually down by about 1%. They're not happy with that strong yen, at least for this Monday session. Fast retailing, the parent company of Uniqlo, also down by about 2%. You've got a number of other electronics plays like Sony and Panasonic. Well, they're actually looking quite split today. Panasonic doing quite well in today's session. They're actually defying this downturn, but Sony and Mitsubishi both in the red. One notable outstander, though, in today's session, if you had to pick a winner in Japan, it's ASI, the pharmaceuticals group. They did say that they have applied for early registration for marketing of this Alzheimer's drug that they actually were able to uh, get approval of in the United States. And, there's, and it could mean that they'd be closer, actually, to marketing and actually offering it as an early stage uh, treatment against Alzheimer's in Japan. But so far, that's what's driving them up. The rest of the Nikkei 225 really feeling this at the moment. And also on the back of those bond yields that you guys just discussed a while ago, they're actually, um, we did see that uh, the 10-year yields, at least, are just uh, marginally above that 0.5% level, which is, the, which is the level at which the Bank of Japan wants to control it at at the moment. So it seems the markets are challenging at least the bond buying that's happening in Japan at the moment. And also because of some of these expectations that perhaps we will see a widening of that, of that, of that, uh, of, of, of the uh, range around the yield curve control when the Bank of Japan concludes its meeting on Wednesday. Back to you guys. JP, that chart that you showed of the U.S. dollar versus the yen, um, quite interesting that we've already seen a pretty substantial move higher in the yen versus the greenback. I wonder to what extent a relaxation or a, um, a reversal of policies already priced into the market and what analysts are saying uh, is the potential range for the yen if we do see more demand for the Japanese currency, what, what kind of level are we looking at here? Well, I think that it's a bit split at the moment with regards to what the traders are looking at. Some of actually have it coming down as far as 124, for instance. But at the moment, you're also seeing that after it, uh, after the 10-year yield actually rose above that 0.5 percent mark, uh, that, that that mark, it, you started to see it repriced down to about ha- about 0.5 percent, just above that also. So perhaps we're also seeing perhaps the pricing in of that widening of the yield curve perhaps is already starting to um, uh, play itself out, for lack of a better term. But again, a lot of things could happen between now and Wednesday when they 
actually have that policy position. But yes, there is a there is a scenario that perhaps it won't go down to about 120, but just around that 120 to 125 mark could be as strong as how uh, as far as the yen goes. Mind you, this could be a widening of that of that curve. But again, we also have to uh, keep in mind take into account what the Bank of Japan might do in successive meetings. And all of this also getting bolstered by the fact that inflation in Japan has started to beat expectations for the most part. That's also giving the Bank of Japan perhaps a little bit more confidence to say maybe now is the time for us to loosen the straps and let that yield curve start to move in a more normal fashion for the most part. But again, these are all projections by certain analysts and we'll only know uh, what, what really happens with regards to where the yen goes um, after that meeting actually concludes in about 48 hours. Yeah. JP, thank you for the preview. Really appreciate it. We'll continue the conversation about Bank of Japan a little bit later in the show. And as JP said, the BOJ's two-day policy meeting will end on Wednesday. Governor Kuroda will then host one more meeting in March before his term ends on April 8th. So something to bear in mind, his legacy may be factoring in here, may factor in here to the decision that comes through from the Bank of Japan. Before that, though, he'll be sitting down with Jeff in Davos. You can catch that session live on CNBC at 11 o'clock CET. That is this. Friday. Now, let's turn to markets. This session on Friday was an interesting one, a roller coaster. Uh, initially, sentiment soured after we got some U.S. bank earnings, a mixed bag. But eventually, sentiment improved throughout the course of the day, and all three major indices ended in positive territory. The Dow Jones gaining in just over 100 points, S&P 500 rallying about 0.4%, and the Nasdaq rallying about 0.7%. In terms of this week, more focus on earnings. We've got more banks to look out for. Goldman Sachs, the highlight. We've also We've got Netflix and P&G to look out for. And if that is not enough, we've also got a few Fed officials due to deliver some fresh commentary. Obviously, we've got Davos in focus, world leaders gathering to discuss um, all major macro geopolitical market um, uh, debates. Um, and we've got the U.S. bank earnings that already came through to continue digesting. So on that front, let's take a look at the U.S. banks. Um, here's a picture. We ended higher all across the board. The key headline that stuck out to me looking through what you heard so far came from JP Morgan. The bank said its base case now is that the U.S. will enter a mild recession and it is provisioning accordingly. So the U.S. banks already talking about a recession this year and making adjustments, preparations for that as their base case. And the banks, of course, plenty of insight into the U.S. consumer through their lending business businesses and also what's happening on the deposit front. Turning to fixed income markets, here's a picture for treasuries uh, right now. We've got the U.S. 10-year note. Hopefully, these charts look a little bit funky, but um, assuming they are correct, we've got 3.498% for the U.S. 10-year yield. Moving on to dollar crosses, let's take a look at foreign exchange. We had some big moves in the U.S. dollar last week. The dollar index dropping 1.6% over the course of the week. That was the worst weekly performance for the greenback since November. And as JP just ran through, we're keeping a very close eye on dollar yen this week with the Bank of Japan meeting kicking off tomorrow. Uh, right now trading around 127.64. Sterling trading firmly versus the dollar 122.54. So we've traveled quite a ways higher. The euro dollar um, also trading higher around 108.54. I mentioned the Fed officials due to give comments this week, particularly important because it is the last week um, that we will have a chance to hear from them before the blackout period begins. 
On to opening calls for Europe. What does this mean for the European Open? Green across the board. Part of the reason, perhaps, the strong session in Asia, as JP outlined um, just a moment ago, we were seeing a strong performance in Chinese equities in particular. We got Goldman Sachs going overweight China and also some encouraging news around on the COVID front over the weekend seems to be uh, boosting sentiment. So we've got the FTSE MIB over in Italy poised to open a triple digits higher. Zetradax looking to open about 70 points higher and the CAC 40 and FTSE 100 also looking to open in positive territory. Well, to talk markets further, let me welcome Viraj Patel to the program, senior strategist at Vanda. Viraj, great to speak with you once again. Um, if I look back at the last week from a macro perspective, we got an encouraging inflation report for December and more resilience in the labor market over the last two weeks. Are you feeling more optimistic this week than you have been in the last few? I think so. I think, you know, we've been sort of hoping, I guess, for this Goldilocks environment in the first quarter this year. And I think I think last week seemed to have played that to fruition to some extent. So, look, I don't, I don't think we should get too excited. We've had two couple of reports. And I think, you know, one of the thing, themes that we're sort of running with in the next sort of two to three months is the idea that volatility is likely to remain high, both in terms of price action, but also narrative. So, look, I think 2023, the narrative could change very, very quickly, which means investors probably need to be extremely nimble here and not get wedded to any one regime. So like right now, I think you want to ride the wave of this sort of Goldilocks repricing. Um, I still think that equities, you know, the path of least resistance, the pain trade is that we grind higher before going lower, which is kind of inverse to where the street is right now. And I think maybe, you know, that's, you know, looking for these sort of no brainer type of uh, trades or looking where positioning is supportive and where you can see squeezes or, or mispricings is probably the best way to trade the next couple of months. Interesting, Virage, that you say the pain trade is still higher for equities. Certainly, um, it feels like that's been the case at, at different periods over the last year, year and a half. Is the market pretty bearishly positioned still? Yeah, look, I think especially after last week, no one's getting too excited, especially as you uh, rightly mentioned at the top of this uh, segment that we've got a flurry of earnings. And I think the next couple of weeks of earnings is really going to dictate the path for equities, I think, into Q1. So, look, it, the, the risks are probably where investors are positioned, you know, on our metrics, the most, they've, most bearish they've been all year. Uh, for 24 months now, I think this is a pretty sort of high bar for, I guess, you know, further sellers to come onto the market. So risk reward is that any small positive surprises potentially sees that squeeze coming to fruition. But equally, you know, like I said, this is going to be a really sort of tactical environment. I don't think any, you know, the data is mixed, the evidence is mixed, the earnings is probably going to be mixed. And I think, you know, and that both bears and, and bulls will sort of spin it in that way. Uh, that, that that they want. So I think, again, you're going to be sort of looking for these short, short sharp squeezes or mispricings, taking profit as quickly as possible, and then sort of you know moving quickly onto the next narrative. You know, listening to you, it feels as though the coming months are going to be packed with uncertainty. So it is surprising to see that you've got a list of what you call no-brainer trades. Um, talk to us about what you think is the best strategy for uh, bond markets, specifically U.S. Treasuries. Yeah, bond, the path for bonds is probably a bit easier than equities, partly because look, we've had a 2022 as a record sort of year in terms of the bond market sell-off, especially in terms of this stagflationary environment. We haven't seen anything like this for sort of a good part of four or five decades. So, you know, the, the risk of that repeating itself is probably low. And I think we're either going to straddle uh, a, a really big downturn, I think, in this recessionary environment, more than what the consensus is speaking about. Or we get this Goldilocks environment where maybe the Fed pivots, but equally, you know, the inflation data comes off quite quickly, but the labor market shows just enough pain 
uh, to keep the Fed at bay. So either way, you know, whether it's the Fed pivot or whether it's uh, this recessionary environment, you kind of want to be owning bonds to some extent. It's just a case of how quickly uh, bond yields come off. And obviously in the latter scenario, the sort of downturn crisis scenario, you could see some uh, sharper haven flows coming through. So that's 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 one of the no-brainer trades I like. And then on the back of that, you've got a range of cross-asset no-brainer trades, things like gold and also yen to some extent. These have been highly correlated to US yields, obviously, over the past 12 months. And equally, you know, uh, they both had really bad years. I think, you know, to some extent, and especially yen, you know, we're talking about the yen a lot more now when you've also got the sort of positive tailwind potentially coming through from the Bank of Japan, Japan, Japanese cyclicality coming through at the time where the rest of the world seems to be slowing down. You know, that goes into the no-brainer category for sure. I think this year could be the year of the end. You know, Vera, as the year of the yen, we had a guest on Street Signs last week who said that is perhaps the most consensual trade of 2023. Uh, what is your response to that? Because it feels as though um, the majority of guests do believe in long yen, but to me that suggests that um, it is consensus, which doesn't necessarily bode well from here. Yeah, look, I, I, I have some sympathy to that view. I, you know, we've been sort of calling for that yen view for four months, maybe a month too early, but definitely on the side when we're you know talking about Bank of Japan intervention that we could easily get down to sort of the 120 level. My, my pushback to that is two things. One, that in this environment, you know, I don't know uh, a, a tr- an asset out there outside of commodities that is more momentum driven than dollar yen. It's almost like betting on sort of economic cycles on steroids. So to some extent, it, you know, the, I've grown up with this adage that, you know, when the yen moves, it moves big. And I think that you don't want to fight that, you know, especially when you've got these such clear tailwinds coming through. So I, I have sympathy to the view that on the short term basis, yes, it's a crowded view, it's consensus, but positioning just does not support that. If you were to see positioning in line with where the yen gets to on the eve of a recession, you've got a lot more room for these yen balls to move. And like I said, when the yen moves, it moves big. I wouldn't rule out on the eve of a recession something like dollar yen trading with a 110, if not a 105 handle. So look, I'm not saying that that's the path straight away. I think we'll get there in a series of sort of ups and downs. But, you know, the trajectory is set for this year. And I think you want to be sort of riding that wave. And and, and like I said, it, it's almost a no-brainer right now. Um, very, um, it's certainly clear when the yen moves, it moves big. So even if it is consensual, it still may be an attractive trade. Um, if I look back at the last year, it was a really good one for macro investors. Taking a directional view was a, an incredibly successful uh, strategy compared to active equity investors, which who struggled in large part. How is this year going to be for macro investors? Is it going to be another year where um, they outperform perhaps some of the active equity managers out there? Yeah, I've given this quite a bit of thought. I think last year could go down as a bit of an anomaly for this um, sort of momentum and macro momentum trade, partly because, as I said, you know, the start, I don't think that any one regime will play out. I think you've got to trade these quarter by quarter. I think we could easily see the cycle running through quite sharply. Various narratives are highly volatile, but no trends, right? We had a clear big trend last year. You know, you almost wanted to be short equity, short bonds, sit on that and ride that sort of throughout the course of the last 12 months. And that's where those macro momentum strategies did really, really well. Do I see a repeat in the other direction, i.e. long long equities and long bonds? Again, I'm not convinced there. So I, I think this is going to be a really choppy one for sort of trend and momentum strategies. And, that, and that's probably one of the reasons why alpha and, you know, even like sort of stock pickers and, and, and macro sort of asset pickers are probably going to do a bit better this year than sort of those trend following strategies. Well, I guess I'll have a chance with the earnings season kicking off. Um, Viraj, thank you so much for the conversation. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Viraj Patel, Senior Strategist at Banda.
world leaders and business executives are gathering in Davos, Switzerland this week for the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. WEF President Borg Brend says the war in Ukraine is, and rising global inflation will be top of the agenda. So much is at stake. We really need to find solutions on the wars and conflicts. But we also have to secure that we don't go into a recession and we have 10 years of low growth as we had in the 1970s. That is at stake and we need all the stakeholders to be part of working uh, towards a safer and more inclusive, uh, growing global economy. Borga Brenda speaking there. Now, fragmentation of the global economy could reduce economic output by up to 7%, according to the International Monetary Fund's latest staff report. Decoupling technology could push the losses up to 12% in some countries. The IMF says the COVID-19 pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine have heightened geopolitical tensions and increased fragmentation, while there has been a leveling off of global goods and capital flows since the 2008 financial crisis. The IMF's MD, Kristalina Georgieva, is just one of a swathe of top guests who will be joining us from Davos this week. We'll also hear from UBS CEO Ralph Hammers, as well as the German finance minister. And we've got the heads of state for Spain, the Netherlands, and Lithuania. Add to that, we've got Stan Schartz, Bill Winters, OECD Secretary General Matthias Korman, and AstraZeneca's chairman. It's going to be a busy week for the team on the ground in the Swiss Alps. Coming up on the program, China's COVID death toll more than doubles in a month after global pressure on Beijing to report the full numbers. And for more on a potential hawkish pivot from the BOJ, as well as the latest market action, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to Squawk Box. China reported almost 60,000 COVID-related deaths in the past month, its first major death toll report since lifting pandemic restrictions. Now, that included just over 5,500 deaths due to respiratory failure caused by COVID, with the remainder combined with other ailments. It more than doubled China's official COVID-specific death toll since the start of the pandemic to just under 11,000. China's property market continued to show weakness in December as new home prices fell for the fifth straight month, raising bets Beijing will roll out fresh measures to support the economy and the sector. Prices in Tier 1 cities remained flat on the month, but 55 of 70 cities saw monthly declines, four more than in November. Sam Vadas filed this report. New home prices in China have fallen for a fifth month, further confirming the slowdown in the fourth quarter. According to Reuters calculations, prices fell 0.2% on a monthly basis, the same as November, while compared to a year ago, they dropped 1.5%. The data shows the Chinese housing market is yet to see the impact of recently announced support measures after previous efforts did little to ease the liquidity crunch and help demand, particularly amid a mortgage boycott fueled by unfinished housing 
housing projects. The latest policy steps include relaxing the lower limit on mortgage rates for first home buyers and lifting a ban on equity funding for property developers. China also recently came out with a 16-point plan to help the sector, including extensions on loan repayments. And now there are reports it may ease its three red lines policy, the deleveraging campaign which has been partly blamed for the struggles. But the newly announced measures came as China started to dismantle the harshest elements of its zero COVID policy. Of course, December was marked, marked a shift from COVID curbs to rising COVID infections and government-imposed lockdowns moved to self-imposed quarantine, which hasn't been good for things like production, construction or even heading to the showroom. Sentiment, though, is likely to gradually recover this year as China steps up support for its COVID-hit economy and demand starts to meaningfully pick up off the back of the reopening. In Singapore, I'm Sam Vardis. Back to you. On the topic of China, we've got some news out of uh, Kyoto this morning. Uh, China partially relaxing visa suspension for some travelers for Japan, from Japan and South Korea. This is interesting because there's been a lot of back and forth around new restrictions uh, of Chinese travelers going into South Korea and Japan. A lot of anger and frustration uh, within China around these um, COVID restrictions. Uh, so interesting to see that this seems as though it is perhaps stepping back from those uh, those those harsh harsh exchanges with China, uh, partially relaxing visa suspension for some travelers from those countries and those countries' popular destination for Chinese travelers and thought to be uh, high on the list of Chinese travelers looking to uh, move out of the country after years of um, essentially being uh, restricted to stay within China. Now pushing on to energy markets, Eni and Chevron say they have discovered a new gas field in the eastern Mediterranean off the coast of Egypt. The site is located in the Nargis offshore area, which Chevron and Eni each hold a 45% stake in. Egypt's state-owned EGAS says it will work with both partners to begin production soon. The discovery comes as any seeks to entirely replace its gas supply from Russia amid the war in Ukraine. Hadley spoke with any CEO Claudio Descalzi at the Atlantic Council Energy Forum in Abu Dhabi and asked about Europe's energy mix. The issue is what is the role of gas? That is that. So if you consider the role of gas in the short term terms and you need gas, it's going to be difficult to find gas. Because uh, you know the only country that can sell gas as a show, because they, uh, with, in, in a positive way, I mean, they, they invested, they have the technology. Russia, they invested, they can sell gas to nobody. The U.S., Qatar, maybe Australia, finish. In the other developing country, you need, uh, you cannot go and, and so you you have to invest, and the investment need need time and risk, and then you have to recover this investment. So if gas that looks to be an, an elastic component of the energy, European energy mix, uh, you have to accept that gas is going to accompany. So you need the, that commitment. Yeah, and you need this commitment because also for us, I'm going in any case to make this investment because as LNG then I, I can send this gas somewhere else. But if you ask the US, please give us gas and they have to invest and they have to recover 
gas investment in upstream and then in LNG and they have to recover in 15, 20 years and they do that for Europe, clearly they are going to ask contracts or take or pay or any con engagement for 15, 20 years. Yeah. And so do you think that there is reality sitting in in Brussels? I, I think that, yeah, I think that the, the war, uh, the war was a wake-up wake call for everybody, this mm. war, unfortunately. And uh, I think that everybody understood that is a is crucial, a critical, the fight for the climate change. That so, uh, environmental sustainability is a must, a, a pillar. But then we have you know with just one leg you can stand. You need something else, and energy security is another pillar. And for Europe, one can say when you say affordability for Europe is. Uh, uh, the capacity to create an, an industry, an energy that is affordable, affordable for our in, in industry to compete. So yeah. competitiveness is another essential pillar. We have three pillars. Yeah. And so you think that Brussels gets this at this point? I think so. I think so. Yeah. That that is. A, so you can't have a transition at the expense of energy security. I think that you know, you cannot do something that you cannot do. So at the end. Uh, if there is something uh, emerging you have to solve and now unfortunately the war accelerate this process russian missile strikes on an apartment block in the eastern ukrainian city of dnipro killed at least 29 people it was one of the deadliest attacks on civilians since the war began and rescue efforts remain ongoing with 40 people missing. The attack comes ahead of a meeting between Ukrainian allies in Germany this week to discuss fresh supplies and financial support for the country. On that note, German Defense Minister Christine Lambrecht is planning to resign, according to multiple reports from German media outlets. Opposition politicians had called on her to stand down after she posted a New Year's Eve message where she talked about the war in Ukraine while fireworks went off in the background. The potential move comes as Germany considers whether to send tanks to Ukraine. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.